Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Katie Balls. This week, as the royal scandals start stacking up, we ask if the younger Windsors are letting the Queen down. Plus, what sort of message should the government send to the public about a no-deal Brexit? And last, we talk Parma ham and sourdough and the dangers that come of introducing your children to bourgeois diets. This week, Prince Andrew has been embroiled in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal after footage was released of him waving goodbye to a young woman from the convicted sex offender's door. The news comes alongside the continued row over the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's private jet-setting lifestyle. In our cover piece this week, Jan Ra writes that the younger royals are letting the Queen down. Why haven't they adhered to her gold standard? I spoke to Jan and royal biographer Angela Levin earlier in the Daily Mail offices. Jan, in this week's Spectator, you paint a picture of a disappointed Queen Elizabeth. What's going wrong with the royal family? Well, I think if you look at the poor old Queen, I mean, there she is. She's been 67 years on the throne, I think. She's never put a foot wrong in one of her neat little buckled shoes. And now she's surrounded by children and grandchildren who are just not behaving. I mean, if you take these things individually, they're bad enough. But together, it's a sort of real storm front of bad royal behaviour. You've got Prince Andrew, who, who's being engulfed in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. You've got Harry and Meghan preaching to the world about global warming and being eco-warriors and then taking four private jets in 11 days. And you've got Zara Tyndall taking six-figure sums from random businessmen to advise them on horse racing. And all these things together, they just don't look good for the royal family. Angela, if we look closely at what's happening with Prince Andrew, um, that Janice just mentioned, and the Epstein scandal, we've heard Buckingham Palace this week say that he is appalled by uh, reports of these crimes. Do you think the way this is being handled by the royal family, by Prince Andrew, is damaging? Well, I thought it was a joke that Buckingham Palace could issue a statement saying he was so shocked and horrified by what had happened when he'd known 10 days ago in 2008 that his friend had just come out of jail after 18 months for admitted child abuse. I mean, he pleaded guilty. So it's a nonsense and it makes you want to feel that they're they're absolutely not on the right page whatsoever. Prince Andrew was friends with Epstein from the 1990s and there was an interview with him that was pulled out where he said that he believed in being loyal to a friend and that he was going to stand by him. So how the palace can then say he didn't know what was going on, I can't imagine. Do you think there's a sense that because he is in the royal family, perhaps Prince Andrew doesn't think he has to respond in the way, say, a normal civilian would with accusations like this? Prince Andrew is very spoilt. He is acknowledged as the Queen's favourite child, and whatever he does, she tries to smooth it over for him. And he can be very charming, but people also say he's arrogant and full of himself and has very little self-awareness and I think that that's what we're seeing now. I mean he's got a record of it. He was made a regal representative for trade and went all around the world and trying to build up trade for the UK. All very admirable except that he dealt with potentates and rather nasty Middle Eastern leaders. So he's got a a long history of not quite getting it right to put it mildly. I mean I wonder if 
both Harry and Andrew have sort of second son syndrome in that sort of, you know, they're not the firstborn, they're not going to get the riches and the crown and all the, the sort of all the importance, but they've still got the prestige, but they're not expected to do as much and, and sort of left to their own devices. They're sort of behaving like spoilt people who don't have to account for themselves. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Princess Margaret was the same with Princess Elizabeth. She didn't know what to do. She unfortunately lived in an era where women weren't expected to work as well. But I understand that it's very difficult to find a role for yourself. Prince Harry, when I spoke to him at Kensington Palace, mentioned that. You know, he was lost and the one role he was really keen on, which was serving in the British Army, he was removed from Afghanistan after 10 weeks because uh, I think it was Australian magazine spilt the beans that he was there and he was putting not just himself at risk but all the other soldiers who were with him. So when you when you met him how did you sort of find him what kind of a person did you think he was? I thought he was charismatic I thought he was funny. I thought he was very intuitive like his mother. And although he's not academic, I thought he had a really good brain. He could see right through things and he, I thought he could see right through people. He made me laugh, but he is damaged. I think anyone who comes from a dysfunctional family like he has done, where the parents really are warring and can't bear each other, is a damaged person. Now, Jan, when we look at the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, their friends have come out this week saying that this is actually unfair, the scrutiny over the number of private jet flights they've taken, suggesting it's bullying and intrusion of the privacy. And some of Meghan Markle's friends have also suggested that this is actually a matter to do with racism. Um, do you think there's any merit in these arguments? No, <laughs> in short. I mean, the choice is clear for Harry and Meghan. They can have a lifestyle funded by the British taxpayer, or they can't, and then they can be as private as they want. But when you've got people, you know, when you have people paying out over two million for a refurbishment of their home, there's a certain sort of expectation from royals. They kind of have to behave in a certain way. I mean, if you look at people like Princess Anne and even Prince William and Catherine now, you know, they lead lives of sort of diligence. They obey the rules in a way that Harry and Meghan don't. I mean, the public have no appetite for people like Harry and Meghan telling them to be green and be aware and then take four private jet flights in 11 days is the worst kind of hypocrisy. I agree with you and I, I think it doesn't matter if you have a benefactor who's going to pay for you and then put in a load of money into planting new trees because it's the principle and it actually implies that it's okay if you're rich and someone else pays for it but it's not okay if you've worked hard and saved up over a year and want to go on a nice holiday where the sun's going That's to right. shine. That's right and it's becoming evident that a lot of these carbon offsetting schemes are complete rubbish. I mean of course they are. I think we all sort of knew that. Anything that's so open to abuse must be. I think someone said online the whole carbon offsetting thing is like a man admitting to his wife that he's had an affair and then giving her a bunch of flowers. I mean, it just doesn't work. Jen, you make the interesting point in your piece that there's been this tendency under Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to time their announcements with an American audience in mind. If you look at the dates around the birth of their first child, do you think a more global outreach is ultimately a good thing for the monarchy? 
has well, the potential to be. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, the, Harry and Meghan aren't all bad. They have the potential to be something great for this country. You know, going out there, I mean, a lot of the causes that they embrace are actually very good causes. But they're going to have to kind of smarten up themselves and not be hypocritical about it. I was really shocked to see Oprah Winfrey at the wedding. I mean, how did they become friends so quickly? So Oprah's there, Gail King, who's a very, very powerful American producer. She's a great friend of theirs. Now we understand that Ellen DeGeneres has been to visit them and they've been talking about their wildlife concerns. So you can see that sort of, you know, they seem to be aiming at America. All these people who kind of ignored Meghan before when she was a when she was a young actress, they're all paying court to her. So are they going to use this in a good way or a bad way, this interest? That's that's what will be fascinating to find out. Angela, finally, given the reasons we've discussed, are you worried at all about the fate of the monarchy when the Queen one day passes away? I'm not at all worried about the state of the monarchy. I think their popularity has gone up and down, like temperature charts, and often there's a patch where they fall low and then they get popular again. I mean, William and Harry together really boosted the monarchy. They were very bright, they were enthusiastic, they didn't have a sort of phony accent. Well, it probably wasn't phony because they're upper class, but they had an accent that we could all relate to and they were handsome, enthusiastic and everyone thought, hooray, and I think that's lasted for a while and now I think it is a bit dodgy again but I'm sure she will come back. I mean, I think this kind of bad behaviour is like a contagion. It makes people question the role of the monarchy. You know, why are they there? Why are we paying for them? Why do they behave like this? I think it will change after the Queen's gone, actually, because I think the British public have so much respect and affection for her in a way that they don't have for the other royals. So. Well, I think, I spent a year following Prince Charles um, to write a profile of him for his 70th birthday, and I thought he was incredibly underestimated. I thought he's got a sense of duty like a piece of rock. It was running right through him. He worked terribly hard. He saved nearly a million young people from the street, and I think that we will get used to him. I know he hasn't been popular, but I think that he is stable, He's honourable and the royal family is very, very important to him. But Angela, will the British public accept Queen Camilla? I'm sure they will. I think there's been a huge change, actually. She's played it very well. She's very warm, rather like Diana. She relates very well with people. She supports him, and you look at him and see how happy he is, and you feel, well, OK, it was a long time ago. And also lots of information came out that Diana wasn't crystal clean. And they were badly behaved, but he'd had a very hard time, Charles. I think very highly of him. We shall wait and see. Thanks, Angela. Thanks, Jan. Angela's latest royal biography, Harry, Conversations with the Prince, is available to buy online and in all good bookstores. Now, on to Brexit. The government will soon embark on a high-budget PR blitz to raise public awareness of what a no-deal Brexit might look like. But what should the government's narrative be? Warn of the worst-case scenario and the government risks inducing mass panic, or play down the possibilities and the government may have to eat its words. I set out this dilemma in my politics column this week, and to discuss, I'm joined by Poppy Trowbridge, former advisor to Philip Hammond, who now writes for The Guardian and The Times, Stuart Jackson, former Tory MP, and Ian Wright, chief exec of the Food and Drink Federation. 
So Stuart, it looks as though we could be heading to a no-deal Brexit. You've worked previously in the Department for Exiting the European Union. How do you think the government should handle it when it comes to talking to the public about what to expect? I think what the government needs to do is really ramp up public information, particularly focused on businesses. Essentially, no deal is a problem in two respects. One is if you have big multinationals with complicated supply chains, and one expects that these bigger companies will have been doing contingency planning for several months, if not years. The other thing is, frankly, if on the other side of the channel a decision is taken unilaterally to make life difficult, to check every pallet, every crate, every document, there's actually nothing we can do to mitigate that. But I do think that the government needs to discharge its responsibilities, particularly with SMEs, in terms of information regarding customs, uh, IT and the border. Poppy, you've worked in the Treasury, which uh, in certain publications, perhaps even this publication, (laughs) has been seen as a a blocker to no-deal preparations. Over the weekend, we had the leak of Yellowhammer, which went through various scenarios of what could happen in a no-deal Brexit. And Number 10 appeared to be slightly confused over how to respond to it, whether it was Project Fear, whether it was things that were no longer relevant or things that could still happen. Um, What did you make of it? Number 10 has to be honest with the public. This is a civil service document. They are always live. There is no such thing as a past document. It is made continuous and updated for each administration. And they should have, I think, been straight with the public. The public can handle it. And I think what they should have done is seen it as an opportunity to big up their no-deal preparations and the message that they really want to communicate to people, which is we we are determined to do this and we are preparing for this. So I, I actually think they handled it very poorly and I think they lied to the public and I think that was the wrong thing to do, especially because, as Stuart rightly says, the communication campaign that they now face must be based on trust with businesses but also with the public, the public that will sustain this administration afterwards if we go into an election. And that's got to be done in, in an honest and and respectful way. So treating the public as if they're able to take on the worst case scenario, but to explain to them what we've done to mitigate it. In all fairness, though, if I could just make a slightly technical point here, there is a difference between the work of Yellowhammer, which is in the Civil Contingency Secretariat, and the actual more granular technical work that DEXU have done for three years. So in a sense, there is a a level of confusion as to readiness and contingency, which perhaps the general public isn't aware of. My point is about the missed opportunity. And and we all know that the government, we think that they're gearing up for a, a big information campaign, which is absolutely, we think we agree, the right thing to do. They could have used that as an opportunity to get going. They could have they could have just reacted more quickly and started to talk about the things that they were doing. And instead, they, they tried to distance themselves. So I'm not sure that was the right approach. But it does sound like an information blitz is their preferred way forward. And actually, that is absolutely the right way to treat businesses and, and the electorate. Ian, has the government given you or your members much instruction on a no-deal Brexit? Do you, do you feel prepared? Well, I've been in <coughs> meetings with DEFRA and DEXEU for what seems like my entire career. Uh, but certainly we've been doing it for two years. We've had a weekly meeting uh, with Gove and the excellent David Rutley, uh, now unfortunately not at DEFRA. And we were making quite a lot of progress, I felt, in terms of really detailed stuff on this. So ludicrous, but also very important stuff like which health mark will we use after the 31st of October? Will it be GB or will it be UK? 
which, uh, what colour palette are you allowed to move food on into the Irish Republic? Turns out that there's only one kind of palette that you can move from third country, which we will become, into the EU. And we don't have any in this country of those palettes because at the moment we're not a third country and we don't need them. So those kind of levels of detail are, are really important. And that work has been going on for more than two years. Actually, that, this gives me my opportunity to defend the preparations that were made by the previous administration for leaving the EU in the beginning. And not a lot of people know this because we weren't making this public. The real questions were about capacity, about what we could deliver, not about money. Departments didn't know if there were enough human beings trained in security measures to be border guards. So that's where we began. And when I say we, I mean all of Whitehall, departments number 10, number 11, the Treasury. That's where the, the planning began, and it evolved then to become more departmental based and and then money was allocated and now it's more detailed, more nuanced and biddable. But it isn't a black or white line in the sand. It is very much an evolution. And, and the process began with these really big questions. Where do we get the things we need? Do they even exist? Well, and we've still got that. So uh, there's a, a particular shortage, believe it or not, in this country of customs agents. Now, for 40 years, nobody has needed a customs agent or even know what one is, unless they're exporting out or importing beyond the EU. Now, we are going to need them for that purpose, and we don't have them, and we need 20,000 of them on the 1st of November, or in fact, on the 1st of October, to do all the preparatory work. They just don't exist. You can't train them. It's a two-year training thing. So those sorts of practicalities need, needed to be addressed before, and we were working them through. But at the moment, I think there's, I think there's a kind of disconnect. I observed this since, since the new administration came in. Civil servants are extremely now knowledgeable about all aspects of a no-deal Brexit. They may not know what will happen, but they know the kind of shape of what it would look like and they understand the businesses that will be impacted. But we've gone from Michael Gove telling my members, literally telling my members, shout long and loud about every detail that's wrong, because we will get things wrong, to the current Secretary of State for uh, DEFRA saying, we're ready. Well, we can't become ready in three and a half weeks. That is not feasible. And Gove was saying, we're not ready. And Gove is the man who's in charge of all the planning. So I, I, there's a dissonance between the different messages. That's my point about being honest. Yeah. Uh, Stuart, on that, if you look at the makeup of Boris Johnson's government, it is lots of people who campaign for leave and lots of people who over the past couple of years have said things like, this is Project Fear about some of the no-deal warnings. Do you, do you think there is a sense of project fear to some of the things we're hearing about what would happen in the case of a no-deal Brexit? Yes, I think so, because the fact is that we, by increments, have, have moved quite a distance towards managing no-deal fairly smoothly, in that we have made bilateral agreements across the European Union on things like the sale of financial services, on road haulage, on EASA, the Air Safety Agency. So there will be an agreement and there will be an opening to go into, to at least explore WTO Article 24 if the EU is so minded, which for those who are not technically minded is a sort of so-called manage no deal. But the idea that uh, we haven't done anything in the last two or three years is nonsense. Even when I left the department, we had 300 bespoke no deal projects that, that were ongoing. And as I say, the main 
issue will be at the border. But if you look at pharmaceuticals, the pharmaceutical industry now are saying that they're they're prepared, they've got warehousing, they've they've got some backup stockpiled medicines, fresh food may be a problem of course, but there will there will have to be you know different modes of transport for companies such as supermarkets etc to tackle that. But yeah, I think there has been an element of project fear. I think if I can just pick up on one issue that Poppy mentioned, you know, David Davies has alluded to the fact that in March 2018, the Treasury specifically prevented Dexu from rolling out a public information scheme to SMEs because they didn't want to frighten the horses. I think in retrospect, that was probably a mistake. And that's the big difference between then and now that I think I'm quite fascinated with. We didn't want to talk, we, and I don't mean just Treasury, I mean all of government, didn't want to talk too much about the uncertainty, the unknown. We were, people worried that that would, we couldn't explain what that meant, we couldn't explain what those consequences Mm. would be, and that frightened people. So for example, every time Philip Hammond said the word turbulence or uncertainty, which, which he did regularly, he was slapped down or people would react and say, you can't scare people. David Davis did an entire interview this morning talking about the turbulence to come. Michael Gove has characterized it as bumps in the road. And I think the reason it is more acceptable to talk about this now without having to explain what it really means is because businesses have prepared. Certainly big businesses have. And the country is ready. So there again is the evidence by deduction that we have moved towards preparing for this and that the uncertainty isn't as frightening anymore. You just need to decide how much of it you're willing to bear. I just have to say, I think the uncertainty is terrifying in in our industry. One of the problems we face is that, that the government has taken a different view, pretty much a, 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 diff, a very different in character view of food imports to food exports. Mm. So the priority is keep the stuff flowing in so that the UK consumer and shopper is fed and is fed at a price that they're used to. Well, that's okay, I suppose, although we will see prices rise and they'll rise at a speed, I think, beyond what we've had in this country for 40 years. Uh, so high single digits, rather that, rather as they did uh, immediately after the referendum. But for those who are exporting, they, it, there is a bit of a danger, and this isn't a deliberate policy, I totally get this, but there is a bit of a danger that some of them are being thrown to the wolves. So if I were, some of my members are organic food producers, and many of them export to the EU, they will not be allowed to do that as organic food after the 31st of October, because the kind of side deals to which Stuart was referring don't exist. Well, if if you've got 40% of your business in exports, pretty quickly you're going to go bust uh, if you can't export. And of course, there's a commercial advantage to all the European biz- uh, European businesses who can pick up that uh, that trade. And so they're not going to move quickly to help. And it's those kinds of areas where it, it's quite micro, it's really quite small scale stuff. My, my other last point is... A lot of the very large food manufacturers in this country, the international names, don't export. So they, they, they may import ingredients and they may export at the edge of the range, but most of them make here for here. So the vast majority of big food exporters in this country are medium-sized and small firms, and they're precisely the ones who aren't ready. Well, I think that's a very important point, Ian, that 
We need to be told more about Operation Kingfisher, which is because now we can set aside state aid rules. We can specifically target help to businesses that are going to be impacted by no deal. And I concede, I freely concede that people don't know enough about that. And that's one of the challenges of the government to tell businesses and their representative organisations about Kingfisher. And again, this shows how things have moved, because when we were working on Kingfisher, there was a worry that it would be misunderstood as a propping up failing industry or bailing out companies because we were on the brink of collapse. It had echoes of the financial crisis. And of course, that is, as you know, is not the purpose of Project Kingfisher. But because understanding is improving and, and moving forward each day, we can begin to do this. And, and let's hope that that is what this administration does, which bombard us with information now for six weeks. But Poppy, isn't there still a risk of a backlash here? Because on the one hand, you have Boris Johnson saying, well, there's a will, there's a way, talking about the future of Mars bars and a no-deal Brexit. You have Boris Johnson saying, there may be a few bumps in the road, but ultimately we're going to show the gloomsters and the doomsters who's boss. And yet, we can't say for sure that the scenarios in Yellowhammer aren't going to happen. There are so many variables here. No matter what preparation you could do, you could have shortages. So... We will have shortages. There will be food shortages. We won't run out of food. There's no, virtually no chance of that happening. But there will be food shortages. We import 40% of our food, almost all of it, or the vast majority of it from the EU, and a lot of it from Ireland. And inevitably, if that is disrupted in the short term, a lot of that is fresh food, there will be shortages. So is there a risk that the optimist, you know, even though there's lots of talk of Brexit preparations, is going to lead to some backlash if, if these things come to be? Look, we all in this room understand why the Prime Minister is trying to be so optimistic and send this message. That's his job, to be the chief campaigner and mascot for uh, Britain being a success in the future and, and and outside the EU. We all understand that. But again, my point is you need to be honest with people. And it's... It, about the process of getting there. And what I find unacceptable about the way this administration has approached bedding in is that they're not being very straightforward about the the two sides of the coin. They're not telling us what they're doing to get a deal, but they say there's a million one chance that we won't have one. Well, those two statements don't square for me unless you can provide the evidence of what you're doing. So I do think uh, there is an enormous risk of a backlash. However, I would caveat that by saying I think they're actually this... The one thing this administration is very good at is communication mm. and uh, explaining policy. Michael Gove is a master of this. Mm. And they have all the tools at their disposal to mitigate that backlash when it does come. I think it will come if the consequences of no deal are um, at the at the worst end of the spectrum. But they have the skills to to mitigate that. They just must employ them. Do you think we're heading towards a public backlash if we go for a no-deal scenario? I think it's already priced in this binary choice amongst both business and the electors that what is the price you're going to pay for having sovereignty, national political sovereignty, economic sovereignty and frankly an independent globally uh, focused uh, trading policy is the price of that worth at some disruption at the border for six months to 12 months and that is the big question that none of us can answer I suspect it probably will if it goes on much beyond then then it will be a big challenge for Boris Johnson and the government there'll be a bit of blaming as well blaming on Ireland blaming on the EU for the consequences we've already heard a lot of the blaming do you think the sovereignty argument is how the government should pitch a no-deal Brexit because at the moment what we've heard mainly is the fact they are pushing for a Brexit deal and they will do no deals they have to 
Well, I think the government has got some sort of benign weapons at their disposal. You know, citizens' rights, we have made a unilateral pledge on citizens' rights. We have made a unilateral pledge on sharing defence, security and intelligence. You know, there are, there are side deals that we can make, which is uh, our side deals which are to the benefit of, of member states. And I think we need to keep pushing that, that, this is, this, that we've been taken to a fork in the road, we can't go any further, but that doesn't mean that we can't cooperate with our friends, uh, as, as Boris Johnson says, our friends and allies across the channel. And then finally, I just wanted to ask each of you what you think the odds are on a no-deal Brexit. Ian, do you want to go first? Not really. Um, I, I still think a no-deal Brexit is unlikely, largely because I think the nearer you get to it, the more ghastly it looks and the more smelly it becomes. And I think politicians tend to avoid... Uh, the brown sticky stuff if they can possibly manage it and if they can't avoid it they make sure it adheres itself to their opponents. I actually think that that there will be, I don't think this government will do a deal but I don't, my own personal guess is that this government won't be in office on the 31st of October and if I give you one uh, reason why I haven't said that at the meetings you go to. No I have said that actually, I mean they're quite nice about it actually really but the thing that, um, I think they think I'm mad um, but the thing that I, I've heard for the first time, and I am no supporter of the Labour Party, but the thing I heard for the first time in the last week from at least two of our very, very large company CEOs was, do you know what, I'd rather we had Jeremy Corbyn stopping no deal than I would Boris Johnson going for no deal. Now, at the moment, that isn't the choice. But if that is where the choice reposes itself, if serious business leaders are saying that, Boris has a problem. Well, I think serious business leaders are, are rather adrift from the public opinion on that. I don't think opinion polling finds that. And in fact, a poll this week said by thirteen uh, percent, forty-eight to thirty-five, I think, that people would prefer a No Deal under Boris than a Corbyn government. And a Corbyn government is a massively huge existential threat to our business life in this country. Well, I think these guys are talking about the caretaker offer he made, where he's there for four weeks and well, presides over a general election. Personally, I think that would be quite popular with business. I think it's fantasy politics. You're not you're not going to get that. I, I think it's 40% chance. I think if anyone... Can, of no deal. Of no deal. no deal. I think if anyone can pull a deal out of the hat, it'll be Boris Johnson. I think there's a 60% chance. I'm picking that number out of thin air, but I think there's more than a 50% chance that there'll be a no deal. My point is that this is a very risky strategy for the government to pursue, and I question what is lost in pursuing it. So pursuing what looks like a no deal only strategy. I would caveat that with what we've seen this week with the Prime Minister's first foray into Europe has been really encouraging. And there has been what appears to be some movement in the language, at least from one of his interlocutors in Germany, Angela Merkel. Thank you, Poffy, Stuart and Ian. Last, what would you do if your young children can't live without sourdough bread, rocket in their bacon sarnie or artisan cheeses? In this week's magazine, Colin Freeman writes about the embarrassing bourgeois dinner requests he gets from his offspring. So when did children get such discerning metropolitan palettes? Collins joins me now together with spectator contributor Leah McLaren. So Colin, tell us about your children's bourgeois middle-class dietary demands. Well, this is something that's been going on for a while, but it was brought home to me very clearly earlier in the summer holidays when I was up in Norfolk with my two children aged seven and eight. 
and uh, we were in a cafe and a man sitting next to my son in the cafe asked if he was enjoying his breakfast and he said yes bacon sandwiches are my favorite but i do prefer them with a bit of rocket in them as well at which point i sort of cringed inwardly thinking everybody in the cafe is going to be looking at me and thinking you know who is this bourgeois ponce who insists that his children have rocket in their bacon sandwiches that the man did not react in any way and it, it may be that he didn't even know what rocket was but i've since mentioned this to a few other parents and it seems everybody has a story like this you know for example somebody else i know she asked her daughter if she wanted ham and the daughter said only if it's parma my own daughter has been saying when we're in the in the supermarket when i'm buying sliced bread daddy why can't we have sourdough and so on and so forth leah is this a problem that you've encountered with your children Oh, God. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I hear you, Colin. So we have three boys. I have an 11-year-old stepson and a 7-year-old and a 3-year-old who hasn't quite caught up to the bourgeois foodie trend. But the 7- and 11-year-old recently, you know, we were ordering a takeaway. And, you know, we're not made of money. I was thinking, like, pizza, pizza, kebabs, come on. And they started chanting, it's zoo, it's zoo, it's zoo. And they actually threw a full-blown double tantrum because I refused to order, you know, 75 quid of gyozas and salmon avocado. (laughs) I mean, it was just, and my husband and I were looking at them like, what? have we created? Like, who are you monsters? (laughs) But you know what? In truth, they kind of are the monsters of our own creation. Like, I remember a couple of years ago getting a new cookbook, the Melissa Clark. She's a New York Times writer. She's great. And I thought, oh, I'm going to make the kids something that sort of will open up their palate, but, you know, is still comforting, like polenta with ricotta and some crispy fried sage leaves. And you know what? My advice to you, if you want to do that, don't bother because most kids are just terrible. You put any effort into cooking, and then they just go, meh, I don't like it, which is annoying. But then if you keep cooking, eventually you can sort of bring them over to into our, you know, sort of bourgeois food-obsessed culture. And then, you know, then you have to deal with the itsu tantrum. So it's sort of the flip side of, of that. Colin, do you accept that you carry responsibility for your children having such, I suppose, sophisticated or we could say particular palettes? I mean, you are the one doing, I'm going to presume here, perhaps the Waitrose shop. (laughs) Yes, it is partly my fault. I should say in my son's defence, or my defence rather, he'd only had Rocket in a bacon sandwich once before when he was in a local, a trendy local deli cafe where we live in South London. And we encouraged him to try it because the rocket was already in there and he ate it and it backfired somewhat in that he was then announcing in this cafe in Norfolk that this was totally normal. And I could have sort of gone into a long explanation about all this to the man sitting next to me, but it would have probably looked a bit odd. But I think it's also slightly embarrassing sometimes, you know, because it flags you up as being this sort of member of the kind of bourgeois metropolitan class, which obviously I am, but I like to think that I'm not because I was born in Scotland. You know, I like to think I'm a sort of sturdy, doughty provincial type. I think by the time I came to London, I was 35, I think, before I even ate an olive. And I remember the first time I ever went to the Middle East for work, I was sat with a a colleague who was already based there uh, having some drinks and some nibbles. 
and I ate what looked like a sort of very hard stoned nut. Eventually spat it out, unable to eat it, saying, these nuts are a bit hard, aren't they? And he looked at me and he said, yes, that's the, the olive stone that I've just eaten and put back in, in the tray. So I don't like to think I've absorbed too many of these tastes, but then you think, like, well, all the times you've eaten in sort of a trendy burger place and had a nice burger with focaccia and all the nice caramelised onion hummus, all these tastes do eventually rub off on you. You then sort of pass them on to your kids in limited ways. But while I know or I tend to sort of be quiet about it in public for fear of what people might think of me, the kids see it as normal and therefore are perfectly open about it. Hence what happened in Norfolk. Colin, aside from putting salad in their bacon roll, I specify rocket, not basic iceberg lettuce. One of the other things you talk about in your piece is the idea that your children are pushing a climate drive in the sense that they are eco-conscious. They talk yes. when you put diesel in your car. Do you think your children are having a positive effect on your lifestyle? Not when they demand sourdough bread at £5 a pop, um, <laughs> a loaf when you can get you know, uh, sliced bread at a pound. It's hard to say. It's just generally the way they sort of advance these opinions about sort of, you know, all diesel cars are destroying the planet when you're queuing for petrol or, you know, you're queuing up to pay in a garage surrounded by sort of burly, you know, uh, diesel, diesel powered van drivers. And you assume that the other adults around you are probably thinking that these opinions that your children have picked up are ones that they've probably parroted from you yourself. Whereas these days, certainly my, my, my own son's school does anything to go by. Climate change is, is very much on the agenda and, and is not even really questioned. And I, I suspect if I questioned too much what he was getting taught at school, I might get called to the school for you know a quiet word or whatever. I, I suppose it's positive in a way, but it's when it's kind of, you know, sort of spoken out loud in public that you, you do sort of tend to feel embarrassed about it. Although I dare say nobody else even notices with these things. It's as with, with all these middle class embarrassments, it's only the actual middle class people who feel embarrassed about it, which in a sense is, you know, the most middle class dilemma of all. That's true. But it's also kids and climate change. I talk to my kids about this all the time because they're such little, you know, like all people, they're complete hypocrites when it comes to ch climate change. So in one breath, they'll sort of start lecturing you about diesel. But in the next breath, they'll be whining. I want to take an Uber to tennis camp. I don't want to walk. And it's like, do you not think those two things are connected? Or whining for some plastic toy at the, you know, the shop. And you think, well, come on, we've talked about plastics. And your school is going plastic free. But you don't also get to have the crappy plastic toy. And final question to you both, just a quick one to see how deep the problem goes. Would you be able to serve your children fish fingers and oven chips without a scene? Oh, yeah. Well, yes. I would say that, and this would be my advice to you, Colin, because we have a wonderful au pair. She's from very small town, West Coast, Ireland, and her diet is essentially reflects that. I mean, she buys her own food because I can't put it on the Okada order. It's like she doesn't drink water, she drinks squash, she eats white bread, Nutella, and uh, that's mostly it. And my kids have taken to her diet, like, you know, fish to water. They get it. <laughs> They've never seen this kind of food before, but they think it's absolutely delicious. So if you want to, like, regress them, your kids back to a kind of the diet of your youth, I don't think you're going to have a problem.
Yes, I mean, to be honest, my diet, had I not met my current partner, who is uh, much healthier living than I am, would have probably been mainly fish fingers and chips and kebab and chips and other sort of less healthy things even than that. It is good. I'm glad to see my kids are eating vegetables, which I used to hate as a kid. But the embarrassing bit is that, you know, they do occasionally insist on them, ask whether the vegetables are organic, uh, (laughs) you know, when they're out dining. Again, it's something that that's something they pick up from school. Nothing to do with me on a scope. But just think of the cultural education you can provide them one day on like white bread, Nutella, these beautiful, delicious things that they will taste and their faces will light up and it will be like, it, you know, they'll never come back. They'll never come back from that. Thanks, Colin and Leah. That's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as more from the former Prime Minister of Iceland on the Icelandic solution to Brexit. Andrew Marr's diary and Laura Freeman on the latest frontier of the culture wars, your own living room. And have you heard about a special subscriber-only event in September? Sam Leaf will interview author Frank Dakota about his new book, How to Be a Dictator, on the 3rd of September in London for a live Spectator Books podcast. To get tickets, visit spectator.co.uk forward slash Frank. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. And while we have you here, why not also sign up to the Spectator Evening Blend if you haven't already? It's a daily email which rounds up all the day's news with comment and analysis. To do so, just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. 